loving sairam and greetings from prashanti nilayam we continue our study of dharma vahini by picking up specific quotes from swami's book and then trying to understand the quote as best as we can today i would like to start with the following quote swami says quote you should derive the greatest possible benefit from dharma and avoid while following it causing any injury to yourself or to others you must spread the glory of dharma by making yourself a shining example of the peace and joy it gives do not follow the trail of dry logic do not confuse your brain by cynicism and prejudice do not get interested in what others do or believe in and do not try to reform them or correct their footsteps have faith in the basic atma which is your real truth test all lines of conduct on that basis whether it will hinder the process of revealing the atma or not and carry on with your daily duties and rites in the light of that faith and that test you will then never fall into errors you will also derive great joy end of quote let us try to slowly understand the main points contained in the above quote as i see it there are three significant points in it the first is that in our efforts to adhere to dharma we should make sure that we do not injure either ourselves or any other person now in understanding this point we must first be clear about what is meant by the word injury while you and i might interpret this word in terms of mere physical injury what is really meant is injury to the purpose of life as swami has told us the purpose of life is to live life in such a manner that it helps us to go back to god in turn this implies that dharmic action is that which is not injurious to the purpose of life if you want it in really simple terms just avoid sin in fact the best operational definition of sin is that it is any act that is detrimental to the purpose of life if you want it even more simple then ask the question will swami approve of this act and please answer that question honestly if in honesty we can say from our conscience that swami would approve of what we are thinking of doing then that act can be certified as dharmic and also guaranteed to help us realize our true nature as atma that is what this quote is saying next there is the issue of not causing injury to others let me start with a simple matter namely that of talking on the cell phone while driving a car clearly this is not a desirable thing to do since firstly one hand would be used for holding the cell and secondly the attention of the driver would be diverted at least to some extent away from the road and the traffic on the road obviously this is the sort of thing one ought not to do why because by doing this one is likely to cause harm and injury to others 
But I would like to go deeper and for this I need to recall an incident that happened many, many years ago. Swami was in Vrindavan and those were days when Swami used to have special sessions with students after the evening bhajans. I am of course referring to the famous Trai sessions. One evening, after we were all seated and the preliminary talk, small talk, was over, Swami asked me to speak. I should here mention that I was at that time in Vrindavan teaching. During my talk, I made a reference to the morning prayer session and the talk given by a student during that session. The student who spoke that morning discussed Naxalites, an insurgent group that engaged in violent acts in many states, including in Andhra Pradesh. After I ended, Swami asked, Who was the boy who spoke on terrorists this morning? Hesitantly and with much trepidation, the boy who spoke that morning slowly rose, wondering what his fate would be. Swami asked the boy, Have you ever seen a terrorist? No, Swami. Then how do you know about terrorists? Swami, I read about them in magazines. Oh, magazines, Swami remarked, after which there was a bit of awkward silence. Finally, breaking the silence, Swami said slowly and emphatically, All of you, or worse than terrorists. This of course shocked all of us and after we got over the shock, everyone wrote, No, Swami! Swami then went on to define himsa or violence and said that while injuries caused to the body heal in due course of time, injuries caused to the mind take a much longer time to heal, if at all. What I am trying to drive at is that our actions should not merely avoid physical injury to others, but also mental injuries. Swami stressed repeatedly and emphatically that causing injury to the mind was far worse than causing bodily injury. At this point, I would like to respond to a listener who has been kind enough to react to this series. He wrote a letter to us recently making a reference to my comments relating to the depiction by a certain artist of Hindu goddesses, paintings in which the goddesses did not have many clothes. The writer also referred to the defense of this kind of artwork by intellectuals of various hues. Apparently, one intellectual observed that if enlightened Hindu emperors of the past financed sculptors to make and put up statues of a similar nature in temples built by them, what is so wrong about portraying the goddesses in the same manner on canvas? Well, to me this looks like saying that two wrongs make right. Actually, we do not know why the kings of the past did certain things and whether they just had their way because they were authoritarian or because they were least bothered. Maybe the sculptor prepared a sculpture and simply put it there and the king did not worry too much about it. My point is, just because something happened in that too in pretty feudal times, how are we to assume that it had public sanction?
Are we not supposed to have evolved since those utterly feudal days? My suggestion to the listener is not to get involved in such debates. There are many such issues where all the intellectuals are more concerned about their so-called freedom, which is being pushed a bit too much, I think, than about the social consequences of their claims. Things have come to such a stage where the self-declared liberated and enlightened people say, we shall decide what is right and what is wrong, what is offensive and what is not. We are highly educated and sensitive and know pretty well what is good for society. I agree, not all of them say so in such a blunt or abrasive manner, but an increasing number of them are beginning to do so. I find it's not useful to argue with people whose mind is already made up. Swami also says the same many times. And so it is best for all of us to stay away from such people or at least avoid discussion of such matters. That said, I must state that there is a curious double standard where the opinions of these so-called liberals are concerned. They claim all sorts of freedom of expression. But you know what? In many countries of Europe, the same freedom of expression is not allowed in certain matters. With the cautionary remark that I am not taking any sides but merely commenting on double standards, I now wish to point out that in many countries of Europe, it is a crime to deny the Holocaust. I am sure you know what the Holocaust is. That is the word that is used to describe Hitler's mass massacre of 6 million Jews and nearly 1 million gypsies. I am second to none in my denunciation of the Holocaust and would certainly regard any denial of it as a horrible negation of truth. However, if freedom of expression is the issue, then how come certain things are permitted in the name of freedom? in the name of this freedom, even though large numbers of people would be hurt, while other things that are equally offensive are prohibited. Yes, if Holocaust is rubbish, it would certainly hurt millions. So ban such denials, fine. But if certain artists draw cartoons that hurt the sentiments of millions elsewhere, why permit that in the name of freedom of expression or whatever? Borrowing from Shylock, cannot one ask, does not a Muslim or a Hindu or a Sikh for that matter have feelings? What it means is that all of us have a duty to be extra careful not to hurt the minds of others with acts or words that are calculated to be insulting, even if subtly. As Englishmen used to say in the old days about people walking on streets swinging their walking stick, your freedom ends where my nose begins. The bottom line in all this is contained in the advice that Swami gave to students in Tri. The issue is not whether one has this freedom or not, but whether it would hurt others. Vedanta very clearly says that if stating some facts is going to cause hurt, then one must not do so in the name of telling it as it is, which is a feeling born out of ego, rather than eagerness to proclaim the truth. In short, 
the liberal community generally dismisses all reference to morality as irrelevant saying values are relative yet when it comes to their rights they implicitly proclaim them as though they were absolute and hence inviolable in these issues it's a sad fact that there is as pope benedict emphatically declared a tyranny of relativism we may not be able to outshout the tyrants but must feel confident in the fact that just because they make loud noises they are not necessarily right i hope that would soothe at least to some extent the feelings of the listener who wrote to us once more i say to this listener please feel confident that in your heart you know you are right if others hurt it means it's a signal for us from god that we must never hurt others in any manner with our words through insult or anger treat it as just a wake up call and please move on life is not going to come to an end by the thoughtless acts of a few and soon all these big noise makers would fall into the dustbin of history and be forgotten forever okay let me move on to the next quote which is the following quote those who are endowed with atma gyana the knowledge of the atma is their basic truth do cross the ocean of birth and death and without doubt attain liberation on the other hand those who are ignorant of the vows and rites prescribed for them as well as those who have not studied the vedas the upanishads and the gita but satisfy themselves with mere external purity and show such will surely suffer grief end of quote this quote may be a bit difficult to follow however the essence is not difficult to follow or understand swami says that a person's life would be redeemed only when the person acquires atma gyana or knowledge of the self once a person has this knowledge all actions of the person would be completely in tune with atma you may recall that this is what i presented earlier to you as atma dharma if you keep that in mind then in simple terms what this quote says is that all the rituals austerities and pujas in the world would not help one iota where liberation is concerned if liberation is the goal and it had better be then one must learn to identify oneself as much as possible with the atma what does that mean in practice well here are a few rules based on swami's teachings one first and foremost we must learn to appreciate that every being not merely humans but indeed all living creatures are reflections of god two that in turn implies that we cannot and must not harm injure or hurt any being under any circumstance of course this would make many bristle with questions like do you seriously think hitler could have been handled by pacifist methods and so on let me tell you there are answers to all this the ramayana for example has clear answers to this question unfortunately i cannot go into those details here for that would take me too far away from my present objective but i do urge you to make some time for reading the ramayana and exploring it 3 once one sees the atma in all many mindsets that we currently tend to have would cease to be relevant for example 
Many problems of today arise due to what Swami calls the mind and dying feelings. For a person with Atma Bhavam, these considerations would be totally irrelevant. 4. Once one rises to the level of Atma Bhavam, the actions of that person cease to be driven by selfish motive. As a result, anger, jealousy, hatred, etc. would never drive actions. And that makes a big change. Once again I repeat in parenthesis that the time has come for all of us to do an intensive study of the Ramayana seeking answers relating to the practical observance of Atma Dharma. Why? Because Rama provides through his various actions practical examples at various levels as a son, as a brother, as a husband, as a friend as a ruler, and so on. Okay, now let me move on to the next quote, which is as follows. Quote, The person who is free from all desire, who has not even the slightest inclination to possess or enjoy the sensory world, who has no trace of egoism or possessiveness, who is ever in the bliss of Brahman, is far from any tinge of sorrow, and is established in supreme joy and peace. At least in his last moments, if a man is fixed in the knowledge of his basic nature, which is Brahman, he can successfully merge in that beyond doubt. End of quote. Now, I picked this quote for a very specific reason. Before I get on to explaining that, I would first like to draw attention to the fact that Swami is stressing the need to rise about desires and achieve perfect equanimity. This would help a person to be in a state of bliss, which implies that the person can feel one with God all the time, even while alive. However, most people would complain that this is asking for too much. That is to say, all this is far, far beyond ordinary mortals. They might even argue that God is setting the bar too high. And is that really fair? Well, this brings me to the reason why I chose this quote, and that is connected with the last sentence of the earlier quote, which I now repeat for your benefit. Swami says in that last sentence, at least in his last moments, if a man is fixed in the knowledge of his basic nature, which is Brahman, he can successfully merge in that. This is beyond doubt. This is something that Swami first pointed out to Arjuna while teaching him the Gita. What does this quote say? It says that if one can think of God at the very last minute, then one can merge with God, which means that after one sheds the body, one can be in a state of permanent or eternal bliss. That is, one would be liberated forever, no more rebirths. This is where a most important teaching of Swami perhaps the most practical and significant teaching of Swami comes into the picture. That particular teaching is not a part of the quote I just offered, but something which is closely related. And therefore, a discussion of that subject is not out of place. Swami says, all it needs is to think of God in the very last second of our life. If somehow we can manage that, we are home for free, almost. But there is a catch. 
in that case says Swami is that one cannot suddenly think of God at the very last moment when one hardly thought of God during one's life to make his point Swami tells a humorous story it concerns a shopkeeper who was very money minded and hardly bothered about God one day a wise man came to the shopkeeper and said listen you would not attain moksha unless you call out to god at the very last moment how can you remember god at the very last moment when you keep god on the back burner all your life the shopkeeper smiled and replied oh wise man i am smarter than you think i have named my sons rama krishna and goinda and do you know why because when i am on the death bed i would call out to them their names are the same as the name of god so you see i am fully covered the wise man merely shook his head and left years passed the shopkeeper became old and sick and death slowly crept closer and closer one day the man sensed that the end was coming and called out to his sons rama krishna govinda all of you come here immediately they all rushed to the bedside as commanded the man looked at them became angry and said what all of you have come here who will take care of the shop with that he breathed this last his final thought being on the shop and not on god Swami says that the moral of the story is that one really cannot think of God at the very last moment unless one makes it a lifelong habit. And that is precisely where the chanting of the name or Namasmarana assumes supreme importance. Incidentally, I find it extremely significant that lately Swami is stressing Namasmarana far more frequently than ever before. Indeed, on every possible occasion, I would say he is doing this much more than I have seen him do say a few years ago. I think that's an important pointer. Well, let me move on to the next quote which is quote for liberation clearance of vision to see the atma is enough. That is the essential thing not caste or color. How to get that clear vision? The answer is through the practice of dharma. the dharma which is conditioned by caste and ashrama dharma enables the atma to be realized without any mist or fog hiding it from you the practice of dharma fills you with experience through that experience truth is established the truth reveals itself clearly and the vision grants liberation persons who are free from such inner encumbrances hiding the atma may belong to any caste or ashrama that does not matter but they do attain liberation this antakarna suddhi is what shastras extol when they speak of salvation end of quote i don't know how much of that quote you grasp but basically what swami is saying is that dharma is the stepping stone for becoming one with the atma how does this happen swami says when one stays tuned to dharma all the time it leads to a perfect harmony of thought word and deed or trikarna suddhi this triple harmony is indicative of internal cleanliness 
which is referred to by Swami as Antakrana Suddhi. There is another important point here. Notice the words Dharma which is conditioned by caste and ashrama. I don't know whether you followed it, but what it actually means is that we must do our duty in the circumstance that destiny places us. For example, when Krishna advised Arjuna about his duty, he said, Arjuna, you must fight. Many people think this means a divine sanction for fighting, war, etc. Not at all. As Swami has explained, Arjuna was told to get back and fight because he was a soldier and it is a soldier's duty to fight for Dharma. By the way, the war was between the forces of Dharma and Adharma and that was why Krishna aligned himself with the Pandavas because they were team Dharma, if I may put it that way. If Krishna was teaching the Gita to say a teacher or a cobbler for that matter, he would not be talking about fighting. However, duty would once again be the theme, no matter who. In other words, the Gita is all about doing one's duty and not war or fighting, as some imagine. I would now like to take up two quotes because in a sense they are related. The first extract goes as follows, quote, Those who have attachment and hatred, even if they dwell in the forest, cannot escape harm. Those who have conquered the senses, even if they are householders, can be tapasvis. If they engage in acts which are not harmful or condemned, then they are entitled to be called jnanis. The home is the tapavana for attaining non-attachment. Liberation cannot be won by progeny or by charity or by riches or by yajna or yoga. What is wanted for liberation is the cleansing of the self. End of quote. That was an important quote and here is another one that is equally important. And I quote, If there is the will and the strength to adhere strictly to dharma, there are no difficulties in acquiring jnana. One can, without entering sannyasa ashrama, remain as a householder and yet be liberated. End of quote. Now, the most important point being made in this quote says that one need not imagine that adherence to dharma is such a tough job that only sannyasis or renunciates have any chance to realize the atma get liberated, etc. The beauty of the avatars is that they have done all they could to strongly refute such unwarranted and wrong impressions. Take Rama. He lived his life as a married man and in such a manner that makes it very clear that one could lead the life of a householder and still adhere to dharma the way it ought to be. Krishna taught the same message to Arjuna and Swami also now does the same. Some people dismiss the example of Rama by saying, Look, Rama was God in human form. He is exceptional and don't expect us ordinary folks like us to be like him. You know what? By way of reassuring us, Swami has drawn specific attention to many who have risen to the highest levels, even though they lived as householders. Examples include the famous Emperor Janaka and Dilip, an ancestor of Rama. As Swami says explicitly, and I quote, These people reach the goal while continuing in the Grahastha stage. In that stage, they struggled and succeeded in removing all obstacles that hindered the winning of the grace of the Lord. They had as their goal the Godhead they wanted to reach. Therefore, 
do not doubt it grahastrasana is no hindrance end of quote in essence the problems of life are related to desires attachment anger hate jealousy and so on all of us have to face these problems and tackle these problems no one is exempted and no one has a free pass yes married life does pose problems and concerning this swami has the following words quote moved by the desire to cross this ocean of samsara the husband and the wife must both have harmony of minds the resolution to reach the goal must be equally strong and steady in both end of quote the second quote of swami goes on as follows quote one has to be in it and struggle to perform the swadharma without hindrance if hindrances come dedicate them also to the lord take them on quietly as is leela and as is plan that is the best way to follow the grahastha discipline that is the path for both men and women end of quote the message is clear yes married life would pose its problems but all walks of life and all styles of life all pros problems don't simply assume that it is married life that is the obstacle the real obstacle is the mind and its tendency to pick up bad and undesirable companions like desire anger jealousy and so on any careless person can do this and one does not have to be married to fall into this kind of bad company the best insurance is constant chanting of the name with that insurance one can be in any walk of life and one can remain married or unmarried it simply does not matter as much as one imagines i think it's time to wind up some of you might find the quotes of swami to be rather technical you must appreciate that swami's quotes are taken from his writings that go back about 40 years or more not many may appreciate how different the demography of devotees was at that time not only were a high percentage of devotees quite familiar with the basics of the vedas and the epics but also with sanskrit words like grihastha ashrama dharma etc which is why one finds a liberal sprinkling of such concepts and phrases times have changed and so has the style of swami's discourses they are no longer as traditional as they once were of course the message remains the same that obviously cannot change however the style of how it is conveyed has been adapted to changing times all i am saying especially to younger persons listening to this broadcast is please do not be frightened by the words you hear the basics are simple and what i am trying to do is to explain those basics in as clear a manner as i can i do hope i am succeeding at least in some measure thanks for listening and see you again next week jai sai ram